Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. There are countless occasions in our lives when we must choose. Most of them are minor decisions. Should I have turkey or ham for lunch? Should I wear a tie or leave my collar open? Should I stay or should I go? But sometimes our decisions are much more significant, representing real crisis moments in our lives. Marriage or celibacy, a four-year university or a trade school, a mainstream medical remedy, or an alternative treatment. And then there's the ultimate choice for or against life itself, perhaps best captured in Hamlet's famous soliloquy by Shakespeare. To be or not to be, that is the question. We can sometimes feel alone in our decision-making, falsely imagining our dilemmas are unique. Or we want to be zapped with the right answer, and be supernaturally assured that we will never feel the slightest tinge of regret afterward. Or if we ask for advice from a friend or mentor, we might ask the wrong questions or have the wrong expectations. We ask, why did you get married? Why did you become a priest? Why did you go to film school? These are all questions likely to yield interesting answers, but no one's account of their own motivations can finally and fully make absolute sense of what mine should be. The better question is how? How did you decide to take one road and not another? How did you embrace this idea and reject that one? How did things unfold for you after your decision was made? In the third century AD, the Desert Fathers distinguished themselves for their extreme countercultural lifestyle of solitude and prayer, traits which made them trustworthy counselors, whom city dwellers and townsmen ventured out to consult on important matters. In his biography of St. Anthony the Great, St. Athanasius remarked that even the Emperor Constantine and his sons, Constantius and Constans, wanted to know what the father of monks, St. Anthony, had to say about practical decisions they had to make with regard to imperial governance. They wrote to Anthony, who was at first disinclined to serve as a mail-order advice service. But Anthony finally took advice himself, listening to brother monks who encouraged him to answer the emperor and his sons lest he offend them. In his reply, Anthony took the opportunity to remind them that there is but one king, who demands that the powerful on earth care for the poor. The desert, desert Fathers and the monastic tradition that was born from their legacy remain a valuable source for us today in the large and small decisions we all must make. My guest today, Father Augustine Weta, 
a Benedictine monk, describes a fruitful threefold method of everyday discernment in his new book, Pray, Think, Act, Make Better Decisions with the Desert Fathers, which is now available from Ignatius Press. Smart, funny, and easily accessible, Father Weta's little book offers wisdom from the Desert Fathers and anecdotes from his own strange, beautiful trip into the monastic life to help people today approach their own various paths of discernment with trustworthy companionship. Father Weta is a monk of St. Louis Abbey and a teacher of English, the classics, and apologetics at the St. Louis Priory School. He is also a rugby coach, juggling team supervisor, and a surfer. He holds degrees from Rice University, Middlebury College, and Oxford University, and he previously authored the best-selling book from Ignatius Press, Humility Rules, St. Benedict's 12-Step Guide to Genuine Self-Esteem. It is my pleasure to welcome Father Augustine Weta to the podcast. Father Augustine Weta, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you? Uh, I'm great, I think. You never really know until a couple weeks later, but at the moment, things seem to be going pretty well. School's out for summer. Uh, kids are out off campus. I'm feeling pretty good. I, I slept for the first time in a couple of years. Well, it feels like in a lifetime. So, I, yeah, life is good. Well, I mean, that sounds... it's, as one of my students said the other day, my life is great. It's my attitude that stinks. <laughs> That sounds that sounds about right. Well, Father, I'm I'm uh, I'm happy that you mentioned your students and your teaching right off the bat because we're talking today about your book, Pray, Think, Act, Make Better Decisions with the Desert Fathers. And I have to say, reading the book, it first of all, it's it's short, it's funny, it has cool pictures in it. Um, it's it's a very accessible book. And it just occurred to me throughout my reading of it that it's exactly the right kind of book I would want to put in the hands of a graduating senior from high school, somebody who's beginning to ask those questions, what should I do with my life? So I'm just curious right off the bat, you know, to what degree were your students and your teaching and your interaction with young people and, and people that you just consult and counsel, um, you know, where were they in your mind and in your heart when you were writing the book? Well, I, I yeah, they were the focus of this. I The abbot uh, just recently made me vocation director for St. Louis Abbey and so not only have I been dealing with my students and their big decisions, but um, then I've been trying to help young people make make up their minds about these sorts of things. Um, and they do it well. When the abbot may be the chaplain for the school, that's when I wrote my book on humility because I, I had, well, I, I don't know. I just got tired of the whole self esteem movement. But then well, once I moved on to vocation director it became evident that the next stage in this was was how to make up their minds, poor kids. I, I, though, to be honest, the book is always as much for me as for anyone else. I, I personally have trouble making up my mind, and all the more so now that I have the internet. Um, so, yeah, it's it, certainly with them in mind, and so are the illustrations, obviously. I, I, I originally started making illustrations for my own books just because my mother's an artist and I didn't want the sort of big eyed teenager and holding hands in the sunset sort of stuff that they usually illustrate popular piety with. Um, Cause I would never hear the end of it from my own family if I did. 
Um, but that, uh, so, so the artwork really isn't mine. In fact, actually, nothing I write is really mine. One of my students noticed I quote so many different people in my book that uh, he finally said, Do you, did you write any of this yourself? And so I guess I'm more of an editor than anything else. Well, I, I think a lot of you, I, we've never met before, but I, I really felt like I got to know you reading your book. I, I think there's a lot of you in, in the book, a lot of what you're a lot of what you're doing and sharing the wisdom of the Desert Fathers and various other anecdotes from other wise people, um, it weaves very well with your own uh, anecdotes from your own life, your own journey to become a monk, your own, you know, your own decisions that you've had to face in your life. And I was struck at the beginning of the book that you mention that the you say perhaps the question I get asked the most is how did you decide to become a monk, and. Um, I, I just want to just flag that up front here and note, because later in the book, you make the point very convincingly, really, that that it's best to ask questions like how rather than why. Like, it, yeah. in, in a sense, like for someone to say to you, why did you become a monk? Well, I mean, you could answer that question for them, um, and that might be interesting to them. But it may not actually be the question they need the answer to in their own discernment and their journey. Is, is that is that accurate, would you say? Right, right. Well, well, that's that's what I got from reading the Desert Fathers, and then all this. Interestingly, I ended up reading a lot of psychology books and the, and sociology books about decision making and the culture of decision making and the environment of decision making. And it turned out that like all these amazing new discoveries had already been discovered. One of which was that you you don't ask somebody, "What would you do?" Yeah, you ask them, "How would you do this?" Because if anybody, if anybody came to me and said, um, "If you were me, would you become a monk?" I'd say yes. I would drop everything, ditch that girl, and become a monk now, right? But I'm not you, so I'm me, and I have a whole different context for making my decision. So the smarter question to ask is, or well, I don't know if it's smarter, but it's certainly holier, is how would you make this decision? Not not what would you say? What would you do? Yeah. And within that framework, then you, you, you lay out your, um, your kind of threefold, um, threefold method, I, in, in a sense, the, the praying, the thinking, the acting. And the thing that I liked about these three divisions that you created, um, or that come to us from the Desert Fathers, I suppose, is that each category that the categories are not siloed, that there's a lot of thinking and acting in the praying, and there's a lot of praying and thinking in the acting, that there's a lot of interaction among these three categories. But when you divide them up, it really does sort of show um, the kinds of, you know, the kind of process that you might need to engage in to be really intentional about making the right decision as opposed to, you know, trying to justify doing something that you want that or that you think you want in a moment. And so I'd just like to kind of jump in to the first the first section uh, of pray. And then within each of these categories, too, the readers will quickly notice that you you have three categories inside each of the three categories. Um, and in your um, in your category of pray, you have the categories retreat, repent, rebuild. Could you describe the the process of moving from one to the other in those three? Re retreat, repent, okay. rebuild. Sure, uh, except that I want to go back for a second and comment on your comment, which was that the, the, the different stages seem to bleed into each other, which 
I hadn't actually, I had actually thought of it as a, a weakness of the book at first, but now that you mention it, um, that I did have some trouble sort of figuring out where the, like sometimes the retreat part sounded a lot like the think part, you know, and I, and I began to wonder if maybe it, all this wasn't arbitrary. I think it's simply the case that you can't think outside of praying and you can't pray outside of acting and you can't act outside of it. So necessarily they bleed into each other. So thank you for that. By the way, I'm going to use my next book. I'll, I'll quote you on that. Um, but yeah, it all begins by backing away, right? I and mean, your, your mom, when she said count to 10, she was right. Um, and uh, so, so retreating from the situation literally and spiritually is really important. Um, the Desert Father story that accompanies that particular stage is one of my favorites about how um, a monk was, uh, let's see if I can recall this from memory, a monk was beat up by, uh, was harassed every night in his cell by demons. And for, for days and days, they would beat him up. And finally, a demon grabbed him by the hair and dragged him out of the cell, at, at which point he said, oh, Lord Jesus, help me. And the demon originally uh, immediately fled. And when the monk broke down crying, Jesus said to him, why didn't you call sooner? Because <laughs> uh, And I just love that because I have a tendency to try to work through my problems and then pray later. <laughs> but in fact, you know, it can all it, it might all be solved immediately if you just open yourself up to Jesus. Um, so, yeah, that first stage is to retreat. Uh, and then, of course, to repent, because nothing will cloud your judgment so so bad as a sin will. Um, I, I I don't do many marriages because I insist that couples not sleep together before they get married. I, I have a little form letter. I mean, I get lots of invitations, but I send this letter out that says, thank you, congratulations, and I'm so excited. Uh, let's get a couple of things straight. I don't bet on a losing horse. So... <laughs> You're not going to sleep together. You're going to study and acknowledge and obey the church's sexual teachings. And you're going to pray. You're going to go to mass every Sunday for the rest of your lives. Usually then I never hear from them again, but that's fine by me. I've, I've done, I guess, maybe 30 weddings in my life and I've had zero divorces. So um, I'm batting a thousand, which is better than I can say for, well, most batters, any batters, actually, now that I think of it. Um, but, uh, oh, <laughs> which is all to say that what I usually say to them is they say, well, we figured it out. We're, we're going to we're, we're living together and we've already figured this out. And we're going to get married. And I say, well, nothing will starting your marriage off with a mortal sin isn't going to help. Let me, <laughs> let me guarantee that. And, and then and then also, of course, well, we'll get to that part. Well, I'll quote myself again later, but uh I, I, I also say, like, you know, we, we've already thought this through. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like, every culture in the history of the world um, has said it was a bad idea to sleep together before you get married. But the two of you just figured it out in the last six months. Great job. Well done. You know, like, the odds of that are, are very are very slim. But the main, the main thing is you don't want to start off any big decision with a sin. Uh, so you go off and you repent. You, you, in our case, as Catholics, obviously, we go to confession. And a lot of times when kids come to me uh, asking about their vocation or, or 
asking about some big decision they have, I'll say, well, when was the last time you went to confession? Because you can't, I mean, one, one thing that sin really does is it's like a cataract. It, it keeps you from seeing the truth, vice in particular. Um, so if you can just, if you can get that cleared away, even just momentarily, <laughs> you might have a clearer vision of what, where, which direction you're supposed to go. And then of course, that third step of prayer is to rebuild is, is to take your environment and rebuild it so that it is conducive to a good decision. Um, in my own case, I, I became a monk because I make such terrible decisions on my own. I, I'm, I, I always, I, this is, you may have to edit this out later, but I tell my students, uh, I teach a class in, in human sexuality and the kids always want to, you know, it's the, the kids call it sex and Nazis because every decision, every, it, it, it started off as a morality class, but that's the, they're only two things they really want to talk about. Um, but, I, but I, I'll, um, I, I say, look, I would eat, I would definitely be the sort of 50 year old that's sitting in his parents' basement, smoking dope, playing video games and watching pornography if I weren't a monk. <laughs> but but I've removed myself from that situation and just simply put myself in a context where I have to make good decisions on a regular basis. Um, and if I don't, the guys I'm with come and wake me up and drag me to prayer, which is great. Um, and it turns out that there's a lot of there are studies that show that people who are really self-disciplined, who make really great decisions on a regular basis, don't have any more self-discipline than the rest of us. It's just that they rebuild their their lives. They join a running club if they want to learn to run. They join a dieting program if they want to diet. They they surround surround themselves with people who make good decisions. I one thing I found out which was really interesting. They did some sort of study. I think it was in Texas where they have these, apparently they have a lot of fat kids in Texas. And so they just simply, this one school district, all they did was they moved the um, salad bar to the front of the line and the kids lost like three pounds a piece immediately. And, and they didn't even have to tell them to, to stop eating junk food. It's just, they rebuilt the cafeteria or they rearranged the cafeteria. Um, so, you know, you want to lose weight, throw away your ice cream and mix it with a bunch of coffee grounds and uh, put the vegetables in the front of the fridge. Yeah, and, you you remind us of kind of the the maxim, fake it till you make it. Sometimes you yeah. just need to just give it, a, give it a try, even if you don't feel like it. And before you know it, you've established a new habit. And then that relates to another line that jumped out at me from the same section where you say, you learn to make good decisions by making good decisions, <laughs> which is, you know, such a no brainer, but it's so profound and so right. Start making, as you say, you know, uh, go to, go to confession, uh, you know, sort of do these things, lay some groundwork. And then before you know it, you're in a position to make even better decisions about even bigger matters. Yeah, well, and here again, I, I didn't think that up myself. Uh, Francis DeSales said, you learn, uh, and I'm going to misquote, I misquote more people before 8 a.m. than most people do all day. But uh, he said something like, you learn to uh, run by running, to play the lute by playing the lute. And in the same, in exactly the same way, you learn to love by loving. And you learn to pray by praying, right? Um, and you don't, the soldier, and this is basic virtue theory going all the way back to Aristotle. You, he said, you know, the soldier doesn't start off brave. That's just a sociopath. <laughs> the guy who just runs out on the battlefield and doesn't care. 
he he's brave because he pretended he was brave until he finally looked around and realized he was right. Right. Um, our old father Timothy. This isn't in the book, but I I ought to add it to my story somehow. Um, used to tell a parable he made up, which he called the parable of the happy heretic. Uh, and it's he he imagined this lecherous old man who wanted to seduce a young village woman, but he realized he wasn't going to be able to do that unless he gave the appearance of being holy. So he went to church every Sunday and went to mass every day. And sure enough, she noticed him. And then he realized she wouldn't ever he wasn't ever going to seduce her unless he married her. So he went ahead and married her. Uh, and then he realized he wouldn't be able to continue this unless he continued the ruse. And then he finally died and went to heaven and was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful but story. It is, isn't it? Because it, he just, he faked it until pretty soon he was a saint. You know, he didn't even realize it. And, and I think, you know, I, I sometimes tell people like, if you can't, if you can't do the right thing, at least pretend, you know, for the meantime. My, or actually, this reminds me, my father, when I was about eight years old, I, I, explained to him that he really needed to give up my little sister for adoption because she's really annoying. She's 50, 50 years old now and still annoying. Um, and uh, though, well, no, that's, I definitively proved I was more annoying, but that's another story altogether. But uh, anyway, he took me aside and he said, look, Jason, um, your sister annoys me too. Uh, but here's the thing. If you, you're going to find out someday that you really like your sister and you're actually going to want to hang out with your sister. But until that day, fake it. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> I yep. really do like my sister now. She's just as annoying as she ever was, but, but she's actually pretty cool. She's in the army and could kill me if she heard this conversation. So I gotta be careful. <laughs> all day. But uh, yeah, my mom says she didn't know what she did wrong, but her daughter wears combat boots and her son wears a dress. Oh my goodness. Let's uh, let's talk about Yeah, let's all moving right along. No, I, I these are wonderful stories. And and I and I hope our, our listeners who haven't read the book will realize like this is the kind of stuff you're gonna get from this book. I mean, it really there's just a lot of um real a real real charm uh that comes through uh that is clearly rooted in your own uh your own personality, which is which is delightful. Um the second category the, well, you're welcome. But the the second category <laughs> in your book is uh, is think. Okay, so we we've got pray, we want to pray, but then then we think. And you you start with, um, you start with this story of uh, pros and cons of weighing things against each other. And and uh, you mentioned that this is sometimes you know Benjamin Franklin and the kind of American folklore is often uh, you know kind of given credit for being this sort of yeah. father of this kind of pro and con thing. But you say, no, no, actually it, it's the, it's desert father stuff. So tell us about that. No, no. If, if people really, you know, I, I have the, I also teach a class on apologetics and I often tell the kids, if we had really taken the Bible, literally, we would have figured out evolution a lot sooner because it all starts with the big bang and fish, the, then animals and then humans and, or division of land and water, then the, so on and so on. Um, but yeah, if we would have come up with Franklin's uh, moral algebra if we had just listened to Father Joseph Panaphysis. Yeah, uh, no, no, Pan yeah, that's right, Panaphysis. They all have these great names. Um, who said, actually, I'm gonna have to quote him because this one I couldn't remember on my own. I am at peace. In, uh, a brother came to Father Joseph of Panaphysis 
and said, I am at peace in my monastery, but I also feel called to be a hermit. What should I do? And the old man said, the old monk said, if it is a choice between two options, both of which bring you peace, place each, as it were, into a scale, add to them other thoughts, both encouraging and discouraging, then weigh them against one another, which is exactly, exa almost word for word, well, no, it's almost exactly what Benjamin Franklin drew out, right? He said, you, you take your two issues and then you scratch out two over here if it's as big as one over there and... And eventually I, I, I add up the pros and cons. But but Father Joseph of Podaphis has figured it out a long time ago that you just, the way to think of these things, if or the way to start thinking about these things is to weigh them against each other. Uh, and then throw in all the other thoughts that surround it. Um, yeah. But, yeah. But, 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 which is why, by the way, first the first thing you have to do is figure out what the question is by reducing it to one question, right? People say, well, should I go off to college and get married and, and have a career? It should, well, people say, well, should I be an archaeologist? Or I don't know what, should I be a doctor, a lawyer? There you go, that's more common. Should I be a lawyer? I go, well, is that the question? Because really the question, or, or where should I go to law school? And I go, well, first of all, do you want to be a lawyer? <laughs> Second of all, or, or, or let's go back even further. Do you want to go to grad school? Do you need to go to grad school? What what makes you happy? Like, like these are much more fundamental questions. Like, I, I remember when I was trying to decide what to do with my life, my mother said, well, what do you do in your spare time? Which seemed like such an odd question. But I, I realized, like, I spent all my spare time arguing religion with people. <laughs> so that really kind of narrowed the, the question down for me like i was gonna have to do something that i liked or i wanted to do something that i liked to do in my spare time so i ended up becoming a monk but if i uh, you know in graduate school for archaeology my roommate was a business major at wharton graduate school and he we, we laughed because uh in the bathroom on one side of the toilet was a stack of annual reports and on the other side of the of the toilet was a stack of archaeology magazines and he, uh, he, during his spare time, he read annual reports. So it was clear to him, you know, what he wanted to do. Uh, for me, the archaeology, it turns out, wasn't as quite as big of an obsession as I thought. But it wasn't until I started to really narrow down the question that I began to see the answers, or the answers began to lay themselves out for me. Interesting. I, I guess you're just on a humorous note, your, your funny example there of the two stacks next to the toilet, that's kind of a, our younger listeners won't know anything about that since those <laughs> things are all contained by our phones now. Um, but, uh, well, but look at what you're reading on your phone. Look sure, at your right. history. That might be a way to understand what you're, what interests you. Very much your so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Be careful about your internet browser history, but yeah. Same same principle applies. Yes, very much so. And in the the next, so you have the three categories under under think, and those are reduce. You've already talked about that, and then you have refer and reflect. I really appreciated what you said about refer because, you know, we we touched on this before, but we want to seek, we want to seek people who can help us make decisions, um, but we aren't always willing to kind of submit fully to the process of receiving the 
you know, receiving the word that someone might want to offer to us. So you say this, you say, if you're serious about making really good decisions and not just advantageous ones, mm -hmm. you will have to be willing to be reformed by that person and not just find someone who makes you feel good about yourself. And you, you talk to us about um, avoiding confirmation bias. So I, mm. I found that really insightful. Is that something that you find with people that you talk to that they're actually really kind of seeking confirmation, affirmation, rather than like really coming for wisdom? Right. Well, and that's what I think that's the way Americans treat religion in general is as a product. You know, do I do I like this church? Should I stay here because I, I like these people? Maybe the question should be like, does this church make you a better person? Like. Because, uh, or Ches it wasn't it Chesterton, I think, who said, we don't need a church that's right when we're already right. We need a church that's right when we're wrong. And that's, um, well, and if you if you spend your life shopping for a religion, if, if, you, if you move as soon as you find some, a priest who challenges you, then um, you miss out on a big chunk of life. I ended up... Um, for this reason, I ended up on the Peace and Justice Committee in the, the Archdiocese of St. Louis, probably because I have no interest in peace or justice. I, I'm much more of a war and uh, and tyranny kind of guy. Um, but but I also feel like in order to have a rich, fulfilling, and interesting life, not to mention decision-making, that you have to surround yourself by people sometimes who disagree with you. Um, I, I ended up... Uh, a couple of years ago, they had a controversy here in St. Louis over the statue of our patron saint that stands in the middle of the park. Um, the, this, uh, the, the leader of the Black Lives Movement here in St. Louis, a guy named Umar Lee, decided he wanted to tear down the statue because he was Islamophobic and homophobic and Catholic. And so I went out to pray the rosary. Um, but yeah, the rule of St. Benedict actually says that a monk should never get involved in other people's quarrels. Um, so the abbot said, you can go, but if it gets weird, you got to get out. And so I did. I went, but I sort of ended up backing up so much that I ended up with all the Black Lives Matter supporters by, by mistake, ended up talking to them. And Umar and I have a podcast now together. <laughs> Because and he challenges me in ways that I would never suspect. He for our season finale, actually, he ended up going to a Catholic mass, coming back and telling me what he thought of it. And he said, uh, it, it was, "It's really wonderful." He says, um, "You guys believe that's Jesus up there, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "No, no, no. I mean, like, really, Jesus? Like, you believe that is Jesus on the altar?" Like, yeah. He's like, "No, no, 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 no. I'm talking about like the Creator." of the cosmos incarnate on your altar. I said, yes, Umar. And by the way, you're in like the top 30% of Catholics right now, theologically. Yeah. He goes, well, how come you don't dress up for that? And I thought, wow. Yeah. Uh, good question, man. I, and that's the kind of challenge you get from hanging out with people who do not share your perspective. Uh, it's so there's some sort of study or something that shows that um, college students who go out on uh, foreign exchange programs overwhelmingly they say the reason they want to go on a foreign exchange program is to experience a different culture, but almost overwhelmingly as well when they get there they hang out with other Americans, right? Yeah. But, 
but if we if the irony is like if we really wanted to have like interesting friends we pick people who we don't like to hang out with <laughs> people unlike ourselves i mean they, which which of course has to be balanced against setting up an environment conducive to good decisions right i mean i'm not going to go hang out with well i might go hang out with drug addicts periodically but that's not going to be my regular circle of friends um actually it might be but but well at any rate if i were a, a recovering drug addict i certainly wouldn't uh go hang out with drug addicts um because you want to because you have to balance that in uh, environment of contradiction with an environment of support and actually i think one of the things that makes umar such a great guy is that he's willing to support me in my vision his question about the eucharist was really a challenge to me to believe in my convictions even more strongly or to get rid of them because if we don't really believe that's jesus up there then the whole thing can go to hell literally mm -hmm. yes <laughs> right yes in the last, um, the last word that you use under the think category is reflect. And I really appreciated how, um, you know, so you have this whole section about thinking, but then ultimately before it's time to act, after the praying has happened and the thinking has happened, the reflection then, the decision that you come to that will then lead to action is more than just sort of assenting to a principle or a proposition. It's more than just sort of being convinced of something. And here I thought this was, you know, frankly, Father, very Augustinian. I mean, you talk about the will, you know, it's about therefore coming to a place where your what what you desire is what God desires, where your will is is sort of set in the right direction. I wonder if you could just sort of tell us a little more about that. Sure. I, I gotta say, by the way, I, off the record or maybe on the record, that this is like one of the more interesting interviews I've done because you've really read the book, haven't you? Thank you. So How could I not? That. Absolutely. Well, I love it. It's a great book. Sometimes I do these interviews and they say, well, tell us about your book. And I go, yeah. oh, okay. But anyway, um, so uh, you may want to edit that out later or whatever. Oh, but, no, uh, we'll leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you really read through this. Um, but yeah, I, I think that um, in the end, I've decided, and I thought it was Aquinas, and then I thought it was Augustine, and it turns out it must be a blend of both, but that um, there are three pieces of advice you tend to get if you spend too much or, from internet memes, uh, and one of them is follow your heart, which I think is usually a pretty terrible piece of advice because, I, I well, again, I tell my students, if I followed my heart, I would be married and divorced 50 times just this year alone, right? Um, uh, or at least I would have asked at least 50 women to marry me. Um, so so the heart is just notoriously fickle and, and obviously not a good way to make a decision, uh, or at least not to do it. But, but, but then again, you don't want to do something you hate either. I mean, you should consult your heart, right? Uh, but then people will say, well, what do you think about this? And that's great. But again, here, I will pretty much believe whoever has the best argument. And if you're entirely logical, you will always believe whoever has the best argument. Um, our old father Finbar, who likes to give the novices a hard time, uh, they were arguing in the refectory about something over tea. And he listened and listened and listened. They said, well, what do you think, Father Finbar? And he goes, well, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, but... I'm guessing there's someone in the world smarter than you who thinks differently. I'm just going to go with that guy. <laughs> well, 
which <laughs> sounds illogical on at first, but if you if you really followed your intellect, like you just sort of never believe anything because a better argument is surely out there somewhere to the contrary. So there's this third level, and this is the level I say of the will uh, that that where you make all your like greatest decisions, where you say I'm going to marry this person or. I feel really tired, but I'm going to church anyway, or I'm going to charge that machine gun nest or throw myself on that hand grenade, not because it makes a lot of intellectual sense and not because I really feel like doing it necessarily, but because that is what I do at, at the fun. Like that is who I, who I am is the sort of guy who would give his life for his friends, I hope. And so this is what, and, uh, so, so it's really the will informed by the intellect and the heart that in the end makes the, the really greatest decisions of our lives. And, but it's important to sort of be able to isolate that in our minds so that we know we're making the decision at the level of the will and not just following whoever we're infatuated with at the moment or whatever seems like the best logical match at the moment. Again, I come back to the, the the young people that I had in mind when when I was reading the book. I mean, I, I just think that is such a message that uh, that the the generation coming up now. I mean, we all need to hear it, of course. But you know, this idea that it's not just head, it's not just heart. These two messages of like it's got to be one hundred percent logically consistent, or it's got to be what you feel. No, this whole this message of the will is so important, I think that and I just don't think a lot of people have ever heard it. They just have never heard this. So I commend you really for bringing that to our attention. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the poor kid, I, I actually I don't know how I would have made my most of my great best decisions now because the options are just so, so plentiful. Psychologists speak about speak of uh, I think they call it analysis paralysis that and the way one of my students put it he said if I wanted to buy a spoon I could instantly go on the on Amazon and find a that literally a thousand different kinds of spoon how, how do you even begin I, mean, I and even once you choose a spoon there's surely a better spoon there that you haven't looked at yet yeah. Right. And how do you how do you ever go about making a decision today with all these op options and every one of them presenting their very best face. Um, uh, yeah, I feel sorry for them. I, I'm glad I don't have any kids. Maybe that's a sign that I made the right choice. Well, maybe so. And that, but that also brings us to the the third section of your book. I think the the last comment that you were making about acting, and especially the the first word that you that you asked us to contemplate, which is the word resolve. At some point, you just have to make a decision. You have to decide, I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. And you you remind us here that it's you can't be afraid to make a wrong decision. And then, in fact, if you do make a wrong decision, well, maybe in some tortuous way, it's actually the right decision, um, yeah. which is very – that was uh, very encouraging, actually, to read. Well, yeah, someone I read, or maybe I just thought it up myself, I don't know, but – said something or no i think i said it to some a spiritual directee just recently that they're really in the end there is no making a good decision because once you've made your decision either you're gonna mess it up or someone else will so really i think holy people are not people who make good decisions but people who make 
the best of the bad decisions they've made. <laughs> um, because really, in this fallen world, you just can't make the perfect decision. It, even even a even a great decision is going to end up stumbling along the way. All all the writers I know, and, and most of the artists I know as well, because my mother's an artist, so I know a lot of artists, um, will tell you that the final artwork is never as good as what was in my head when I started. Uh, and I have these brilliant, I, late, lately I've been writing a zombie apocalypse for my seventh graders. And in my head, it's this really great adventure, but once it's on paper, it's not nearly as fun. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that relates to another word you asked us to contemplate, which is relax. Um, we all put, we yes, need to relax more. Really relaxed. I think that, right? <laughs> well, you do say the road you're on isn't nearly as important <laughs> as how you walk it. Uh, destination yeah. and destiny are not the same thing. I don't know how we relate that to zombies entirely, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of walking and stuff with regard to them. But, but that was also refreshing that, you know, to, to, especially counseling somebody who, wants help making a decision to remind them that to some degree, um, of course, you know, our minds might be full of films and things that remind us that one, you know, one decision can change everything in one direction. You know, you turn left at this stop sign instead of right. Yeah. And you, you know, right. Which is of course true to some degree, but on another level, we got to just relax. I mean, it, it, it's, it's about the journey to some degree. Yeah. I was talking with someone just the other day who said that like, he used to think about his vocation as like the secret that only God knew. And if he didn't figure it out, like by the age of 35, he, he was just going to live a lonely, horrible life. Um, but I, I just don't think that's the way that God works, you know, let turn left or turn right, but you got to turn sooner or later. And I think God, if you're prayerful about it and joyful in it, then God will work out the rest of it, you know, or, or, or he won't, you know, or you could fall in a hole and whatever. Uh, or but uh, but I don't think your joy depends on making the right decisions in the end. It depends on living well with the decisions you've made. Yeah, and so you encourage us to you might revisit. As well relax. <laughs> right. So we relax and then we revisit to a degree. Now, obviously, you're a man who's bound by vows, and you know, and so to some degree, you're sort of locked into decisions that you've made. And yet, no doubt, I mean, you you must contemplate your the decisions that you made and rethink them and pray more about them and think more about them, just as we all do about our marriages, our, you know, jobs, whatever it may be. Um, you know, that sort of, you know, that, that determination to kind of keep living with the decision that we have made. Yeah, I the and there's some decisions that are irrevocable, right? Like a, a a real marriage you can't go back on. I took my I tell the kids like when I took my vows uh 30 years ago, um and it has not been an easy thing being a priest for the last 30 years, let me tell you. And I've doubted whether it was a good idea or not, honestly. Uh whether whether I made the right decision periodically, I do have my doubts. But there are something, but but a vow is a contract with your soul up for collateral. And I tell them like because we've lost monks here. You know, we're, we're my sister says that the monks are the special forces of the church. No, the Navy SEALs of the church. The diocesan priests are the special forces. Uh, but in any case, 
but but you don't expect many people to make it through the training. And even once we are in battles, we, we've lost men in the battle. Um, but so help me God, if I'm the last man fighting on the burning wreckage of St. Louis Abbey, you'll find me here, you know, because I, I was sane, sober, and free when I made that decision. So that's one that I can't rethink um, or revisit. On the other hand, obedience necessi- obedience to authority and to your elders necessitates periodic periodically that you rethink what you're doing. One of my favorite uh, sort of semi-historic, well, he is a historical character, I guess. He's still alive. There's a guy named Christopher Dench. Uh, he's a neurosurgeon. He's a, he, he, long story short, not real bright, not real athletic, but he ended up playing football for, I think, Alabama. And then went on to become one of the only neuro neurosurgery neurosurgeon PhDs in the country. Um, he crippled, maimed, or killed thirty-five people, and now he's in prison because he would not stop following his dream. Right? Because he he absolutely he had this determination, this iron will, which which was admirable in the context of football. Not so much in the context of neurosurgery, right? Wow. I, he'd, yeah. he'd say, "Oh man, I messed up that spine, but let me back in, coach. I can do it right next time." You know, he ended up leaving a sponge in someone's brain at one point, I think. So, you know, the, there's a point at which you have to listen to the voice of reason, and you have to step back and say, "Have I really made the right decision? Are my dreams really realistic?" or uh, or should I rethink, you know, should I revisit this? Yeah, you actually encourage us in the book to quit things that, that fall into the category of, you know, there's plenty of things that are negotiable that, that can be rethought and can be reconsidered. And you can decide, I don't want to do this anymore and do something else. That's right. That's right. Don't you, I mean, uh, to bring it back to Nazis, don't you wish they had all looked around and said, you know what, we should just stop. <laughs> right. 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 Well, yeah. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, C.S. Lewis says, uh, you know, we all want to be progressive, but sometimes the most progressive thing to do is to get off the road we're on and get on a different one, right? We all we all want to feel like we're going in a right direction, that our will is aligned in the way that we were talking about before with what God wants for us. But sometimes that really does mean changing course. And, you know, there's yeah. this uh, this sunk cost fallacy that sometimes people experience, you know, that they, they, well, I've already been doing this for 10 years, or, you know, I guess I just got to keep doing this or whatever. And, um, no, you know, sometimes there are good reasons to just kind of say, well, you know, you do kind of have to just live with, with what you're doing if you, you're bound up with different commitments, family, whatever it may be. But there are plenty of times where somebody can just help you snap out of it and say, no, I don't need to keep doing this, right? Right, right. Yeah, I call it the war in the Middle East syndrome. Like you say, well, you know, you've already poured so many resources into this. Um, but really, if you, yeah, if you consult wise people, and, and and periodically rethink these things. They be you begin to, well, uh, wait. Actually, no, now now that I'm thinking of it. I think sometimes God actually calls us to begin things that we fail at. I, he right. might even, yeah. I I was a terrible lacrosse player, and I only lasted a semester in college because I couldn't keep the little ball in the hoop. And I was also I also took violin my senior year, which was an was even more disastrous than playing lacrosse. But I'm glad I did both. I think God wanted me to try lacrosse. I think he wanted me to try the violin. I certainly have a much greater appreciation for people who do play the violin now that I absolutely mangled uh, Bela Bartok. Um, 
so, well, so you, I think God sometimes calls us to fail, calls us to to do something that we're going to have to quit. Well, you mentioned before at the 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 beginning of our talk, um, uh, or or actually it was earlier. It was earlier, Father, when we weren't even recording. You were talking about batting a thousand. Uh, right, which is of course absurd. No baseball player bats a thousand. To be a right. superstar baseball player, you you get a hit three out of ten times. I mean, that's a legendary superstar baseball player, right? But he still gets right. up there and fails seven times out of ten. So it's his vocation as a world famous baseball player to fail seven times out of ten times. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, right. In fact, most so so really, baseball is a game of failure, isn't it? I mean. Pretty much. Most of the time, you're not gonna. Ah, that's interesting. Ah, I got yeah. a new. Maybe, maybe that's your next book. Oh, maybe, but you're welcome to use it. And as we wrap up, um, the book ends with your journal of a decision, which I've, I found very, uh, very interesting to kind of look into your life a little bit. You have some photographs of yourself as a young man surfing. I, I, I understand you're still a surfer. Uh, why did you decide to put all that in in the book? Well, I yeah, I was hesitant because I think it's a real problem when people put their personality at the center of their ministry, um, and you find this in youth ministry a lot. Is people who are so charismatic and so compelling that they actually that they gather a great herd of admirers to themselves without actually sort of moving them on to Jesus. On the other hand, uh, the more I the more people that read this, the more they said, no, keep it in there. Because I, after all, my own life is the life I know the best. And I can't, you know, I can only refer to Christopher Dench so many times. The fact is I've had failures and I've had, well, I mean, I think I'm a basically happy person. No, I'm a really happy person. I'm probably the happiest person outside of a monastery that I know. (laughs) Um, that's probably not fair to people, but, but in any case, the, and so I've made some good decisions and not all of them. I didn't actually use this process as well as I would have liked because I didn't know about it, but um, I get, I guess to see someone else working, th- I, I, it's my hope that by looking at my little decisions here and there, and my great decisions here and there that other people might be able to learn how to apply these principles for themselves. Well, I hope that they do. And the book is Pray, Think, Act, Make Better Decisions with the Desert Fathers. It's an easy read, but it speaks deeply to a core spiritual need that so many of us have. It's available from Ignatius Press everywhere you buy your books. Father Augustine Weta, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, what a great pleasure. God bless. God bless you and all of your listeners. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprint. God bless.